Hi, and welcome to Inglewood Presbyterian Church in Kirkland, Washington. We are a church for the neighborhood, whether you're a local neighbor or from far away, all are welcome here. We are pleased to present to you our weekly Sunday sermons. Our head pastor is James Cuman, and you can find more information about us on our website at inglewoodpc.org. Today, Pastor James invites us to read from the New Living Translation, and we're turning to Acts, chapter 2, verses 36 to 41. So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. Peter's words pierced their hearts, and they said to him and to the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, Each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is to you, to your children and to those far away. All who have been called by the Lord God. Then Peter continued preaching for a long time strongly urging all his listeners, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day, about 3,000 in all. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. When we think about kids playing, we often, of course, think about things like this, play equipment. But having worked with kids for decades and have two of my own, so much play is simply conjuring up things out of the imaginations. Kids are so ready, hardwired to live into a reality that's more than what they can simply touch and feel and play with physically. They're out playing good guys and bad guys and dragons and wizards and all kinds of other things. When Liz and I lived in Ann Arbor, Michigan, there were a number of places around town that had what they called fairy houses, which it was fun to pretend with kids that these were places that fairies would live. And Jonathan was both too young and we didn't live in that part of town to be able to do anything actively with it. But lots of parents did. 
For three summers after college, I had the privilege of working with four-year-olds and five-year-olds in a summer day camp called Tom Sawyer. And we had the run of this big, open, wooded area behind a flood control dam in Pasadena, Altadena, California. And it was just great fun. All outside, horses, swimming pools, but also tall stories about Ivan and his castle castle being the flood control dam, and all the things that he did in the magical forest that we took hikes through, and just spinning up between us and the other counselors all kinds of other stories. And yeah, you know, the kids thought they were fun, and some of them kind of believed it, but one day I arranged with a friend who had the day off work with permission from the camp to come and role play Ivan in the forest. And you should have seen my kids as they walk up and we heard the whistling, and I said, that sounds like Ivan whistling. Does that sound like Ivan to you? And all 14 of the kids are kind of not sure entirely what to make of this. And they walk into the clearing and here's this guy chopping wood. All 14 jaws drop simultaneously because they're not yet jaded to the possibility that there actually are creatures and beings and things going on more than we can see with our physical eyes. The culture-shaping success of the Harry Potter franchise is evidence that we, not just kids, but we as human beings, are hardwired to operate in a world that goes beyond what our five senses can take in. That there's more to reality than simply what we see and taste and touch. We love the idea, we're attracted to the idea, we hope it's true, the idea that there's a world that exists beyond, whether beyond or parallel to or infusing our own, where magic is real and the human spirit lives large. Hence the fascination with things like crystals and fortune reading and the whole cafeteria approach to spirituality that just pervades our culture. It's part of it stems from this need we have as human beings to live into a greater, richer, fuller reality than simple materialism. One distinct difference though, at least for us as Christians, is that in earlier eras when people talked about a spiritual life, they in the church didn't refer to spiritual life as sort of a, a vague awareness of supernatural reality or even an intense awareness of supernatural reality because that's just how pretty much everybody lived except for a few philosophers and other oddballs. No, 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 no. Spiritual life for the mothers and the fathers of the ancient church, spiritual life always referred to life with a particular spirit the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who not just lives with us and speaks to us, but for Christians baptized in the name of Jesus, is promised to live in us and empower us. Baptism in water in the name of God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, is the mark of entry into God's family in the, as for us as people who follow Jesus. And in the New Testament, the most common way that is described is being baptized in the name of Jesus, because it's in Jesus we discover these truths about God. The depths of his love and care and self-sacrifice for us, the plurality and unity that is God and Trinity, 
And so baptism in the name of Jesus is under Jesus' authority. He gives us authority to go and to baptize, to wash, to transform, to administer this sign of God's work in a human heart. It's also in Jesus' name because the person being baptized confesses her or his trust in Jesus to be saved, to be rescued, to be healed from all that we've done and has been done to us. And it's done by the person who is baptizing in the name of Jesus, again, under the authority of Jesus, to incorporate this person into the life of faith, into the family of God. We have in our Bibles a book called The Acts of the Apostles, which is a narrative of the beginning of the church. What happens with God's people in the days immediately following Jesus' resurrection and then his ascension bodily into heaven. Jesus is a human being in God's presence right now, by the way. And as the story of Acts begins, the people who had been closest to Jesus, there are about 120 of them, are waiting, praying together, presumably in and out, going to get meals, back and forth to the temple, etc. but regularly gathering and probably never a time when no one's there in this upper room. Again, there's about 120 of them and they are intentionally waiting. They've been told by Jesus to wait until they have the power of the Holy Spirit, this promise from God the Father through Jesus that they would receive God the Holy Spirit to live with them and empower them. And they're waiting. They've been with Jesus 40 days after his resurrection until he ascended back to heaven. Now there's a further 10 days where they're just simply praying and waiting eagerly. What is God going to do next? What is this going to be like? And then it happens. The promise of the Father, this thing that they've been waiting for, this experience of fullness that they've been promised, it happens. There's a sound of wind and things that look like fire that rest on each of their heads. They each become, every single Christian there becomes a burning bush, if you were, burning but not consumed, to be a place where other people encounter God. Now, wind and fire, of course, along with water, have been across cultures and across history, from time immemorial, been physical manifestations that to the human spirit, it communicates to us something mysterious. It always feels like there's something beyond, something inside them that is just out of our physical senses reach. And God uses the sound of a mighty rushing wind and these tongues of fire, indeed to communicate physically, sensibly, older Christians would put it, 
the very presence and indwelling and power of God himself with these people. God also uses language. The communication by these Galileans, these hick hillbillies who for some reason are able to speak Persian and Parthian and Elamite and Coptic and Libyan and all these other languages, speaking the mighty works of God in each of these people's languages to show that there is more going on here than mere excitement. And when Peter gets up to speak, he's not telling them things that they don't know. They know the history. They know the politics. They know physically what happened to Jesus. They were here at this day of Pentecost, 50 days after Passover. Most of these people, particularly the ones that had traveled from great distances to come to Jerusalem, they most likely had been there for Passover and had stayed through. They knew physically and politically what had happened to Jesus. But Peter takes them around the corner, so to speak. He pulls them aside, so to speak, and opens up, rips down whatever metaphor you want to use, the veil between what they had seen and heard and touched and experienced already about the person of Jesus. And Peter now communicates the spiritual reality, the bigger picture reality of what God was doing in these events, that this random Galilean prophet who did great things and was pretty amazing and had some really interesting things to say and some miracles, was in fact the promised king of Israel who was, had come to restore all things, and they had killed him. Which is why the text says, they were, it literally reads, cut to the heart. And wouldn't any of us have been? To find out that we had either cheered on or thought it was a decent idea or at least didn't do anything to prevent the murder, the lynching of the one who... We'd lived our entire lives. Our whole people had lived for centuries, hoping and praying that God would send. And we stood to one side while, well, we as a society killed him. Who among us wouldn't have been cut to the heart if our heart was at all soft? And seeing this greater reality, recognizing that there is now way more going on in this moment than I would have ever, ever guessed. They ask the obvious question, which is to Peter and the other apostles, brothers and sisters, what do we do? And Peter's response is repent and be baptized and receive the Holy Spirit, this promise that's for you who are hearing and for your kids and for all those who are far off, far off geographically and far off in time, which would be us today. And so, and so for us, like them, the response Jesus invites us to give is the same as for those back then, to repent to turn away not just from our obvious sin, but also our apathy and inertia and boredom. And to be baptized, to be baptized with water in the name of Jesus if we haven't already been, and to reclaim our baptism if we already have been. To say, Jesus, you've made me part of your people, or Jesus, make me part of your people. 
and live with him. Now, in the fullness of reality, with the gift of the Holy Spirit, to receive this promise of the Spirit, which is for all, old, young, slave, free, servant, master, everyone is invited to receive the Spirit, to receive God himself to live the fullness of the life that we've only been able to admit is true in stories we think are pretend. C.S. Lewis has this fantastic quote. When I was 10 years old, I read fairy tales in secret and would have been ashamed if found doing so. Now that I'm 50, I read them openly. When I became a man, I put away childish things, including the fear of childishness and the desire to be very grown up. Friends, we are invited to live in a world where we, in one sense, can say Wakanda forever, that there is this reality that's hiding in plain sight. And yes, if you haven't seen Black Panther, go watch it. It is an utterly Christ-haunted movie. Life in the Holy Spirit is a life where God can break in and feed us with his presence in any part of everyday life, whether that's doing the dishes or meeting a homeless person. There's a pastor I respect a great deal named John Tyson, and he actually told a story recently about just being in prayer in the streets of New York City where he's a pastor and just praying for God's direction and meeting a, a homeless woman on the streets and not having any change. And she's, she simply said, well, if you don't have any money, would you just listen to me for a bit? And he sensed the, the voice of the Spirit saying yes, sat down with her, and as he put it, almost instantaneously, manifest presence of God. That's the kind of life that we're invited into, where any encounter, any moment, anything through the day, as we open ourselves day by day more and more to the voice of God himself with us, in us, counseling us, the manifest presence of God opens up, not on our schedule, but on his, but opens up. So what are the barriers? Why don't we experience this more than we do? And I include myself in this as well. It's pretty simple. We don't repent. We don't turn back to God from all the things we try and stuff in the place that really God alone should have in our hearts and only God alone can fill and fulfill in our hearts. We try so hard to put little things in a big old hole in ourselves, and for some strange reason, it doesn't work. As Martin Luther put it, the life of the Christian is a life of daily repentance, beginning at the beginning and going on to the end until that day when our hearts are made new and finally we're free from loving little things instead of God. In addition to our lack of repentance, we either have not yet taken the step of baptism to there is a sense of submitting to baptism, to letting someone else lower us down into that water and then letting God include us in his family or to not reclaim our baptism, to not live into the baptism which we have already participated in. Either way, that's a barrier to living into the fullness of spiritual reality. Finally, so often, even when we do turn away from our sin and even, or try to, and even when we do say, I am baptized and say, God, I want to live into this. And God answers, God, 
God loves us. There is still yet a further aspect to this, that so often we try and grit our teeth and do it as if God saves us and then the rest of it's kind of all up to us. No, 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 no. In the Gospel of Luke, which is the sort of preamble to the biography of Jesus that is preamble to this story in the book of Acts, Jesus says in one place that if we ask God, the Father is eager to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. So let's ask. The Holy Spirit is given as we are made new at the point where God receives us into his family. But there is a sense that if you read the rest of Acts, you can see it. There is a sense that we can fall back into trying to do things on our own steam. And there is a sense in which we are invited into this life of constant dependence in asking for the Holy Spirit, our guide, our counselor, our friend, our comforter, to be with us, to lead us, to guide us, to protect us, to give us the things of Jesus. So repent, be baptized, or claim your baptism, and ask for the Holy Spirit, and let's live the fullness of this life that God invites us into, and be satisfied with nothing less. Amen.